Thank you. Be seated, please. Before we begin in our, serve, our message this morning, I want to announce to you the birth of Lydia Rose Bismarck, born uh, 826 at 342 a.m., 6 pounds, 15 ounces, nine and a half, 19 and a half inches long. Zach and Kettler have their new baby, and Troy and Hillary have a new grandbaby. So uh, congratulations, and God bless you. Well, it's good to see you all here this morning, and uh, those that are visiting with us, we're glad that you're here, and uh, we pray that God would bless you as you have come to worship uh, with us. And uh, it's good to uh, it's good to be back every week. Uh, I think Brother Craig and I have this little saying that goes on every week. Well, another week's gone, and it's just it doesn't it seem, and the week's week's gone, and we're back here again. And I, quite frankly, this is the best day of my week, is being here. Uh, even if I weren't preaching, it would still be the best day, because we would be here together, encouraging one another in the Lord, walking together for His glory, and helping one another uh, as we go along. And that's what it's about. That's why the Lord commands us to meet so that we can encourage one another every day as we go along. So through the week, you should be uh, praying for, reaching out to, uh, texting, emailing one another, and encouraging one another to walk the walk of the way. And uh, I trust you're doing that. If you haven't done that, you need to start. You need to start doing it. All right. Now we've been we've been in John chapter ten now for I don't I don't know how many weeks we've been in this chapter but it's been it's been such a blessing I looked so forward to getting to John ten and we're we're coming down to the end uh, as you can see this morning we're in verses twenty five through thirty one and up to this point Jesus has many times over related to the Pharisees that he is indeed the Christ. Uh, he hasn't told them that in so many words, uh, uh, but he has told them that indirectly through the works that he has done. And they should have been able to see that. But just like all people who are, who are blind to the gospel, uh, they didn't see it. And they didn't, they didn't see it because they are so enamored with and so struck by their own position and sinfulness that they not only cannot see it, they don't want to see it. And that's the same as it is today. So we find Jesus in verse 25, uh, encompassed by the Pharisees who had earlier blasphemed his words and now demand that he tell them plainly whether he is indeed the Messiah. He says, I told you, but you do not believe. Uh, he had, he had, had he told them this plainly before? Well, not in, in so many words as that. He didn't come right out and say, I'm your Messiah. But he, he did tell them 
he did tell them directly that he was the Christ by way of the works that he had done. Now, if you recall, he did tell some people that he was the Christ. He told the woman at the well in chapter 4 that he was the Messiah. She asked. He told her. He did tell the blind man that he had just uh, healed that he was the Messiah. He alluded to it in verse 25 when he referred to the works that he had done, which lined up with the Old Testament and what the Messiah would do when he came. And the Jews equated the title, Son of God, with that of the Messiah. We see it in chapter 3, verse 18, when Jesus told Nicodemus, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Nicodemus would have been clued in immediately that he was talking about the Messiah. He said in chapter 5, verse 25, Truly I say to you, the hour is coming and now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. But they hadn't heard. Their ears were, were deaf to his words. Same thing in chapter 10, verse 36 of this chapter. Now in chapter 5, he claimed to be the Son of God who raised people from the dead and judged them. He cleansed the temple, claiming that God was his Father. The miracles he did were a declaration of his deity, his oneness with God. In chapter 2, verse 23, he claimed that people were gifts from God the Father. In chapter 6, there's ample evidence that he was indeed who he claimed to be. But the Jews only wanted in this instance, only wanted to hear him say it publicly so that they could arrest him and accuse him of blasphemy. It's at this point that Jesus makes probably one of the most startling statements in all Scripture in verse 26. He said, You do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Now, he didn't say... You are not among my sheep because you don't believe. That would put it wholly back upon them. They would become the sovereign in salvation at that point. That is not what he said. He said, you do not believe because. Here's the reason you don't believe. You're not my sheep. This is a great contrast between his sheep against those who are not his sheep. These were not chosen from the foundation of the world. These were not love gifts given by the Father to the Son. And as a result of that, they refuse to believe. Now, lest we misunderstand this, their unbelief is not imposed upon them by God. In other words, God is not making them unbelievers. They are unbelievers because they do not want to, be, to believe and because they cannot believe in that 
in that natural state. Their unbelief is the result of their own sin and guilt in which they have plunged themselves. This is true of every person who has ever been born after Adam and Eve. In fact, William Hendrickson writes, Unbelief has a blinding and stullifying or an ineffectual effect. Lack of faith resulting from ill will toward Jesus means lack of spiritual understanding. You ever wonder sometimes why you, you talk to some people over and over and over about Christ, about salvation, and they just, it's like a deer in the headlights. They just glaze over and they don't get it. Paul wrote of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. This is what he says. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They're spiritually given. They cannot understand them. They don't want to understand them because they love their sin. God is not obliged to save anyone who brings destruction upon themselves. Their ill will and inability to believe go hand in hand. Their unbelief was not due, these Jews' unbelief was not due to their lack of exposure to the truth. They had been exposed to the truth standing right before them. Him who was, he who was the truth and the life. It was because of their hatred of the truth, their love of their own sin. And it's no different today. People love their sin. They don't want to hear anything that will interrupt their life of sin. What is evident here in this passage is the conundrum of divine sovereignty over human responsibility. From the human side... They did not believe because of their deliberate rejection of the truth. And that rejection resulted from not being his sheep. From the divine side, they didn't believe because they were not given to the Son by the Father. Someone has said, well, these two are Parallel lines that meet in the distance of eternity. Parallel lines never meet. They always stay parallel. It only appears that they meet because of our finite understanding of the vision of them. There is no way that you or I can understand the harmony of those two truths. God being sovereign over salvation, His choice, His election, and human responsibility to believe in spite of that. I can't put them together. You can't put them together. In fact, I don't think we should even try to put them together. What we should do is believe that both are true. Just believe that both of those things are true. 
because they're both taught in Scripture. God is the only one who can harmonize them. And so we leave that to Him. You may ask Him in heaven when we're there, Lord, how, do you, how did you harmonize these two truths? And He would probably explain it to you, but I'll tell you what you'll do. You'll fall on your face in worship that He chose you and that you're there. Isn't that what Jesus said? Don't rejoice on, about things on earth. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice on even the greatest things that you can do here. But rather that your name is written in heaven and that you'll be there with Him. That's what we rejoice in. You want to see an example of these two? Look at Luke chapter 22. <clears throat> this concerns Judas Iscariot. And Jesus is on the night, the last night of his uh, life. We're coming very close to the end. And he says in verse 22, look what he says. The Son of Man goes, goes where? To, betray, to be betrayed. He goes to be betrayed as it has been determined. You see that word, determined? That's sovereignty. God determined what would happen. And the Son agreed, and He is ready for it. He's, he has prepared Himself for it. There is divine sovereignty there. Judas would do what is in accord with God's eternal plan decreed before creation. But then he adds this. The Son of Man goes as it is written, or as it is determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. There's human responsibility. Judas was responsible for the sin of betraying Christ. I can't explain that, and you can't explain it. But there it is. He was responsible even though it was decreed by God in His eternal plan that it would happen. How does God hold people responsible if it's decreed by Him to happen? I don't know. I'll just be honest with you. I don't know. All I know is He's God. He can do what He wants to do. And we should not question it. We should believe it. You see, the world is made up of sheep and goats, as we saw in Matthew 25 just a few weeks ago. Sheep and goats. That's all there is. There isn't anything in between. And those that God saves are the sheep. They are the ones given to the Son and drawn to the Son, who is the Good Shepherd. It does not matter whether they are from the Jewish flock or whether they are from the Gentile flock. Jesus said there will be one flock and one shepherd. So he's going to draw those people in. They recognize the voice of their shepherd and they follow him. But what is, the, what is this recognition? What does that imply? 
the implication is that when they hear the Word of God, which Paul calls the Word of Christ in Romans 10 and Colossians 3, they will submit to its authority out of love for their shepherd and they'll obey. They're not perfect in doing this, for sheep often stray from the flock and have to be brought back in. You know, when we lived in Australia, we saw this over and over again. We would, we would go out and watch the sheep uh, and the shepherds. Uh, there they use, they use dogs, and the dogs will, if a sheep strays off, the dogs will go out and get it and bring it back in, and they'll move the sheep into a flock. Uh, and as soon as the sheep takes off, and they do, dog goes out and gets it, brings it right back. Sheep often stray. But Jesus has promised that not a single one of those that are his sheep, whom the Father has given him, he will lose. He will not lose any of them. And he's promised to raise them all up on the last day. The implication here then is one of submission to authority out of love for the shepherd. It's not, it's, he, he does not, he does not, force us. He leads us. He leads us by His omnipotent Spirit. Their love for the shepherd and the reason they obey is from the motivation of hearing and following. That's their motivation. Hearing and following. And then they love Him. Jesus said in John 14, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. He said, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we will come and make our home with him. <clears throat> now when Jesus makes this claim in verse 27, which he confirms the truth, which confirms the truth of faith, giving ear to those who believe, the Christian then accepts Jesus' words as the very words of God Himself. When you read in Scripture the words of Christ in whatever gospel you're reading from, you're hearing and you're reading the very words of God Himself. These words are eternal. Jesus said in Matthew 24, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will not pass away. This this Bible, this, this Word that we teach and preach from each week, that we, that we read and memorize and study from, it will always exist. Always. It's written in heaven. You think when we get to heaven there won't be any more Bible? Oh no. It'll be there. And God Himself will be there to teach us from it. You see, it's eternal. It's infinite. It never ends. <clears throat> his words are the delight of His sheep, and they are not ashamed of them. Jesus spoke of this in Mark chapter 8, when He said, If anyone comes after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will, and the Gospels will save it. For whoever is ashamed of me, listen now, and of my words, of him will I be ashamed when I come with the holy angels in my glory. His words are the foundation of the faith of the sheep because he is their shepherd. Listen to what Luke 6 verse 47 says. <clears throat> Everyone who comes to me, Jesus said. So how do they come? They are given to the Son and drawn by the Father to Him. That's how they come. They don't come off of their own initiative or of their own accord or by their own will. They come because they're drawn by the Father. And then they're willing. They're never willing before that. But when the Father begins to draw them, they become willing. Now, <clears throat> sometimes that happens instantly. That's the way it happened to me. I saw Christ as the Lord. I saw my sin. I saw that I was a sinner that was on the way to hell. And I, I, I saw Christ as the Savior, and I came. Willingly. For some people, it's not so quick. Sometimes it's years, months, or days, or weeks. God working and drawing. And finally, they, they come willingly. Because God has inexorably drawn them to Himself. Everyone who comes to me, listen now, and hears my words. Let me make a statement to you. Nobody is ever saved apart from the Word of God. I'll say it again. No one is ever saved apart from the Word of God. Whether it's on a track, or whether it's someone quoting it, or whether they read it, or whether it's on a bumper sticker, or a gravestone. Everyone who is genuinely saved comes because of the Word, is saved because of the Word of God. He who hears my words and does them, obeys them, I will show what he is like. He is like a man who building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the floods came and the streams broke against that house, it could not be shaken <clears throat> because it was built on the rock. It was well built. So, Jesus' sheep hear his voice, and they follow him, that is, they obey him, they trust what he says, they obey his commands, and I want you to notice now, excuse me, there are six elements found in these verses that explain, that explain the truths previously expressed by the Good Shepherd in this chapter. Notice what they are.
He says, my sheep, listen to my voice. We see that in verse 3, verse 8, and verse 16. He says, I know my sheep. We see that in verse 3 and verse 14. He says, my sheep follow me. That is, they, they live like I do. They, they follow my example. They follow and imitate my life. They follow me. Verse 4, 5, and 27. He says, I give my sheep everlasting life. Verse, verse uh, 10. And you can couple that with John 3.16, which says the same thing. He says, my sheep will never perish, verse 28. Uh, that is, they will never be judged and perish because of their sin. We see that again in John 3.16. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. The wolf that he spoke of in verse 12, which snatches the sheep, is reminiscent of this. And if you compare that now with verses 28 and 29, you find that the sheep are safe in the grip and grasp of the shepherd and of his father. In verse 30. If these six truths could be paraphrased into one, into one little paragraph, it might sound like this. My sheep, having become such because they were given to me by my Father, put forth an effort to catch the sound of my voice. They do this constantly. They eagerly obey me, placing their full confidence in me. I know them, acknowledging them as my very own. They follow me, but they will turn away from strangers. I give to them here and now, as well as in the future, that life which is rooted in God and which pertains to the future age, to the realm of glory. In principle, it becomes their possession, even before they reach the shores of heaven. That life is salvation, full and free, and manifests itself in fellowship with God and in Christ, in partaking of the love of God and of His peace and of His joy. So it differs in quality from the life which characterizes this present age, being its very opposite. And it never ends. I don't know how you can get any plainer than that. To deny these truths is insurmountable in my mind. And yet people deny them. People who call themselves Christian deny them. There is wonderful and most glorious teaching found in these verses. It's called the perseverance of the saints. It is, one of the, it is one of the major doctrines of the Reformation. The word perseverance, however, can make this teaching somewhat confusing. Because on the surface, it sounds like that God has done the work of salvation and now... 
it's man's turn to keep it, to persevere. That the individual must keep on and complete what God has started. Well, in one sense, that's true, but in another sense, it is not. Because that is not what the Bible teaches about perseverance. We must remember that in the grand scheme of divine salvation in Christ, that we are the object of salvation and He is the subject of it. That means that in salvation, God has done something in us. He is doing something in us. And He will do something in us. To put it another way, God started it, He sustains it, and He will complete it. So you see, it is not up to you and your ability to maintain it. It is a work that God does. And He does it faithfully from beginning to end. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, I am sure of this, that he who has begun the good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So from the moment you believed, which was a sovereign work of God drawing you to Christ, making you willing to believe that Christ is who He said He was, that He's the Son of God, the Savior of His sheep, the shepherd of His sheep. You believed in Him. You trusted in Him. You put your confidence and faith in Him. And you're counting on Him to finish it. God says that's exactly what He's going to do. That means there's nothing you could do Nothing you could decide. No place that you could go to make it stop. If that were the case, then Jesus lied in John 6 when He said, I won't lose any of them. If you could be saved and then lost again, something's wrong with what He said when He said, I give them eternal life, they'll never perish. The God who starts it, finishes it. Listen to the 1689 confession which our church adheres to. We are a confessional church and we adhere to the 1689 confession. It is not the Word of God, but it is based upon the Word of God and helps us solidify what we believe based upon the Scriptures. Listen to what it, listen to what it says in regard to this teaching. Those whom God has accepted in the Beloved, that's Christ, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, and given the precious faith of His elect, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace. You can't... You, if you're saved here this morning, you'll never be lost again. Ever. Uh, my wife and I were talking about something here long ago. I don't remember the subject, but I, I said to her, I can't imagine being lost again. Can you imagine that? 
Can you imagine not having any relationship with God? Being totally hateful toward Him? I, I can't imagine that. Because I love, I love Christ more than anything in existence. I can't imagine being separated from Him, even for a moment. Sometimes when I sin, I feel like that. But then I come back to His promise that if I'll confess, He'll forgive and He'll bring back relationship. The rest of that says, Rather, they will definitely persevere to the end and be eternally saved because the gifts and calling of God cannot be taken away. They can't be taken away. Notice verse 27 and 28 again. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. What kind of promise is that? It's a promise of safety. It's a promise of security. Ask yourself, who is the most powerful person or being besides God in the universe? And your answer is Satan. And even Satan can't, can't take it away from you. Now I'm going to show you something that's really beautiful here because... This is saying that once Christ's sheep are given eternal life, which we call salvation, once that is given, it will never be dissolved. And we have no fear, we should have no fear of it being dissolved. That thing is way, way too loud. I can't see these folks over here. Notice uh, verse 28. And I want you to look at the word never. Never. They will never perish. The word never is a single English word that means it can't happen. But do you know that that word never is there by the use of five Greek words? Five. Now, in English, we don't use double negatives because a double negative ends up being positive. Am I right in that? So, we don't use them. Well, In the South, we used, them, used to use them quite a bit. I think we still do. Uh, we might say, I ain't, I ain't, I ain't going to do that. Uh, how, how did it go? Hun? I ain't... Huh? What's that? I ain't got none. That's a double negative. But nobody pays attention to it down there. It's just common lingo. Uh, 
Most people don't care about double negatives. But in the Greek, they cared about them. Because to use a double negative in Greek was very good grammar. Which is exactly what John does here. He uses negatives more than once in, this, in using this word. It is the strongest possible way in the Greek language to express and communicate assurance of something never happening is to use a double negative. In English, it's just a simple negative, never. But in Greek, it can't possibly happen. That's what he's trying to get across to you. This just can't happen. What happened? You can't perish. You cannot perish. In other words, you will not stand before God and God say to you, I don't know you, go away from me. He will never say that. Because for Him to say that would mean there's only one place left to go, and that's the lake of fire. We don't have to worry about going there. That's what perishing is. Christ's sheep will never perish. They will never be separated from Him. He has His grasp on them. They enter with Christ into an era that never ends and has no time. So in a million years has passed, nobody knows it. It's like a moment. There is no stronger affirmation of eternal security than this passage here in verses 27 and 28. It is a sovereign promise from God that the believer in Christ will be safe and saved from God's wrath against sin. It is not dependent on the individual sheep to secure that. But it is, the, it is on the omnipotent power of God who cannot be overthrown to take that to its completion. And so out of that promise comes several truths that bring real peace and real assurance to the hearts of God's chosen ones, God's elect, God's people, God's sheep. First of all, it is Christ who protects His flock from the wrath of of eternal punishment. Now, I want you to understand it like this. He protects us from Himself. Because God's wrath against sin is coming. I mean, it's, it's here in just little bits and pieces now. Uh, we see it sometimes in earthquakes and tsunamis. And we see it in, in fires that burn uh, places and kill people like in Hawaii. And we can say that God's judgment is in those things. And so He saves us from Himself in that regard. When the judgment comes and God is ready to level His judgment against sinners, we're safe. He saved us from Himself. And now He saved us for Himself. 
Jesus said in John 6, This is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing or none of all that He has given me, but raise them up on the last day. Great promise. To teach otherwise. To say that, oh, I'm saved, but if I don't do such and such and such and such, I'll lose my salvation. Or if I do such and such, I'll lose my salvation. Is to defame Christ in what He said. It's calling him a liar. If it's possible to lose the salvation that he's given us, then he has made a terrible mistake in saying he gives us eternal life when he really didn't. Makes him a fraud. Second of all, Christ's sheep hear only his voice, and they will not listen to the voice of a stranger. What he means there is strange teaching, teaching that is not biblical in nature. Believe you me, there's much of that out there today. You have to be careful. That's why, that's why we put literature out and uh, send you to people who do teach the Word as it should be. John 10, verse 5, they won't follow a stranger. Uh, third, Christ's sheep have been given eternal life. And since it's eternal, it can't ever end. And since it can't ever end, it will never be taken away. It, it's just simple logic. Number four, Christ's sheep are not only held in His secure grasp, but they are also held in the secure grasp of the Father. So it's sort of like you're in Christ's hand, Let's make it his right hand because that's what it is. Uh, you're in Christ's hand and he's got his grip on you. And the Father comes and puts his grip around Christ's hand. And now you're in both the Father and Christ's hand. And as old one country uh, preacher said uh, from the south, if the devil ever got in there, he'd be a saved devil. <laughs> that's not good theology either. <clears throat> Satan himself cannot snatch them. He cannot snatch the souls of God's sheep out of his hand. In this salvation, God the Father and God the Son have collaborated and executed a salvation that is everlasting and will never fade away. One last passage, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4. Turn to it with me. First Peter chapter one verse four. I'm still breaking this Bible in, it's hard to turn the pages. Look what he says. Blessed be the God, and verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Notice verse 4 now. To an inheritance that is, Im, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, 
kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. It is imperishable. What does that mean? It means it's death proof. It's imperishable. This is what Jesus said in chapter 10. They will never perish. It is imperishable. It's death proof. It is undefiled. That means it's sin proof. There's no sin that you can commit. You wouldn't want to in the first place and it would it would sorely it would sorely affect you in your soul if you when you if you did. But there's no sin that can cause you to be separated and perish because of it. That doesn't give you a license to go out and just do what you want to do and sin. What that does is that causes you to look to the Savior. And because of your love for Him, you hate sin and you want to be void of it and away from it. It's unfading. It's time proof. No length of time can cause it to stop. Why? Because it is kept in heaven for you by God's power. Not by yours. By His. This is good news. This is stuff we rejoice over. Because it gives us, it gives us victory. It causes us to, to glory in our good shepherd. And live in love with Him and in obedience to Him. Not out of a sense of sheer duty because we want to keep what we've got. But out of sheer love for what He's done in our lives. In verse 30, Jesus said, after He'd said, got Him in my hand and the Father's hand, He said, Father and I are one. Now, He's not saying there that the Father and I are one person, one in personality. He is saying there that the Father and I are one in substance, in essence. We have the same nature. We carry out the same promises. God the Father and God the Son are two different persons. As the Holy Spirit is a different person. The three persons of the Trinity it is saying that their unity of purpose is to safeguard the believers, God's sheep, in time and eternity from the dangers of God's wrath in judgment. And primarily, the final judgment, which is hell, the lake of fire, that is the ultimate expression of God's wrath against sin. You and I cannot imagine the fierceness and the, the force of the lake of fire. Jesus is trying to say in the clearest possible way that he and the Father are of the same essence and the Jews became enraged because of that statement. And they picked up stones Again, to stone him. Now I'm going to talk about stoning next time. 
as we begin here. We'll begin in verse 30, uh, 31. Take, take the truth of what we've said this morning from John 10 with you. These are not my words. These are God's words. These are His promises. I'm just relating them to you. Don't go out and say, Pastor Mark said. Go out and say, God said. Christ said. And encourage yourself to walk the walk and live the life out of love for your shepherd and go wherever he goes. Just follow him. You won't go wrong. Just follow him. Father, we pray your blessing on this uh, Lord's Day. We thank you for the word. We thank you for our good shepherd who loved us, who gave himself for us, who knows us, who keeps us and will never perish. Uh, the, the fear of judgment and of death is is gone. We don't have to worry about, uh, about dying and, and end up in judgment because he has taken our judgment for us in our place. As our substitute. There are no words found in our language or in our hearts to convey our deep love and gratitude for what he's done. And what he will do. But we do love you, Lord. And we pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us from your word, your scriptures. So that we carry on, persevere, and understand that you are God and we are your children. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.